The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. With all the increased interest in near-death experience these days, why is there so little heard about frightening, isolating, or even hellish NDEs, which are called distressing or DNEs? D-N-D-E's. Should we be looking at what they mean concerning the afterlife? Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Those who have experienced a distressing NDE are often reluctant or even frightened to talk about it. And so D-N-D-E's are often thought to be extremely rare. After all, the transcendent NDEs are so much more reassuring to hear about. Our guest today is probably the world's foremost authority on DNDEs. She's the author of a key book on the subject titled Dancing Past the Dark. Nancy Evans-Bush has been affiliated with the International Association for Near-Death Studies since 1982, first as the executive director, then long-term board member and president, and now is IANS, and I dare say the world's leading researcher on distressing near-death experiences. Nancy was the second guest on our program back on September 16th, 2013. And that show is available as, uh, at the past shows button on the NDE Radio website. Nancy, welcome back to NDE Radio. Thank you, Lee. It's great to be back. Um, I thought we'd jump right in perhaps with, um, with uh, you're telling something of your experience having had a, a DNDE. Well, mine was, uh, let me just say quickly, we know there are at least three types of disturbing NDEs. There is one in which if the person describes the experience, it has all the same characteristics as a transcendent NDE, except that the person is terrified because it just seems so odd. This, I'm not supposed to be out of my body. I'm, what is happening? Look at all these people around me, and I'm not on Earth, and some of these people, oh my goodness, they're dead. This is just too scary. So mm. there is that type. The second type is um, the one I had, uh, which is an experience of the void, which I'll explain in just a second. And the least common, uh, the one we hear least frequently, is an experience that the person believes to be explicitly hellish or threatening to become hellish. Uh, so there are those three general types. The void is um, what you might expect if you found yourself um, in the space, uh, headed for space. Say you're, you're an astronaut and you are rocketing into space and all of a sudden, the capsule um, disappears, and it's just you all by yourself out there in the universe. 
uh, forever and ever, but it's an empty, or it looks like an empty universe. There is, you don't see anything, you don't hear anything. It's just you and limitless space. And there may be, uh, for some people, there's a sense that um, there's... Some people actually experience it as as quite uh, interesting and even comforting that that it's not so bad. For other people, there's a sense of being abandoned in the universe, like the old song, Lost in the Stars, only there are no stars. Um, in my case, and for many people, there is a kind of a message that says you never existed, you're not real, you never were real, this is all there is. And sometimes it's accompanied by a message that says your life was a joke, it was a trick. You were tricked into thinking you were alive. But, ho-ho, um, that was wrong. This is it. So, if you, are, if you receive a message from what seem to be really authoritative figures, or at least the messages are absolutely authoritative, um, you do not exist. And then, bingo, you open your eyes and you're back in the hospital or wherever this started. And the, the challenge then is, so what do you make of the rest of your life, which you have just been told with considerable power and authority, this life you think you're living does not exist. So that's the problem <laughs> of the day. Now, um, uh, Carl Jung had a, an experience similar to yours. He was his near death experience put him out into space, and uh, he described uh, some sort of a shaped object, which I believe you did too. Um, that the yin yang symbol. Um, I was wondering if you've seen parallels between your your experience and his. Um, yes, as a matter of fact, I I do see some specifically. Um, I kind of go, ah, yeah, the yin yang, um, because my own personal background had nothing whatever to do with. Yin Yang. I'm a New England Congregationalist minister's daughter. Um, so the Eastern symbol, the Eastern thinking was completely um, alien to me at that time. I was in my late 20s. And so not only did it did I have to to figure out what this experience was because
her name evening like it. Then several years later when I discovered that the symbol I had seen in the experience was the Chinese um, symbol for the the interaction of all opposites um, and their the fact that all of what we think of as opposites are really complementary. Um, this this was not part of my my worldview. So, not only was I not real, but how did an ancient Chinese religious symbol get into the experience of a New England Congregationalist? How did it get through that that barrier? Do you I mean, suppose that? Do you suppose that uh, it was um, implying that you should be studying a more of a Buddhist interpretation of existence, which also involves a, a certain degree of nothingness, as far as we're concerned? Um, what a very good question that is, Lee. Um, as you definitely have the knack for the telling question. Um, ah, what, what I think is not that it's a message that says, go thou and be a Buddhist. Um, <laughs> what I think it, it means is your particular worldview in this case the, the liberal Christian worldview is not the only perspective there is in the world. There are other ways of thinking, other ways that can complement and deepen your understanding. So take a look at this. What do you think of this yin-yang concept? <laughs> now, you, you talk about an authoritative voice. Uh, a lot of Buddhists don't even believe that, that there is a god. So where where do you suppose this voice came from? Was it something that you generated, or was there actually a, a an angelic voice that spoke to you? Um, I wouldn't call it either god or um, angelic in the conventional sense. I mean, there there certainly was nothing like wings and and heavenly music. What I got was a group of, I don't know, maybe six of these yin-yang circles, and they were clicking black to white, white to black, and there was this telepathic message. It never occurred to me that, A, that I was in hell, because the hell of the hell I had heard about looked nothing like floating around in space with a bunch of circles. Um, I didn't think it was God, because God uh, wouldn't be a bunch of circles. I'm not quite sure at that point what I would have thought God looked like, if God looked like anything. Um, but it, I never thought it was God. I never thought it was hell. I just thought, call them like officious bureaucrats for <laughs> some bigger somebody. 
or is something. So the so the authoritative message was coming from the the uh, yin yang symbol itself. Yes. Yes. Okay. Now the when I look at the yin yang symbol, I think of duality. And, you know, this was the hang-up that St. Augustine had with Manichaeanism, was that there, that there was a, a balance between good and evil in the world. And I've always taken that to, to be not true. Um, do you think that these were sent to tell you something like that or to, or to mislead you? Perhaps they were there to mislead you. For a long time, I would probably have agreed with that. Uh, and <laughs> we have to remember, too, I was, I was a college grad. I was not a philosophy major. I never even had a philosophy course. Uh, in my late 20s, at a time, when nobody knew, we were still in the United States in that comfortable cocoon of not being exposed to a lot of religious diversity. So alternative ways of thinking were not common. Um, I don't, what I interpreted initially was very Calvinistic, was this this really disruptive, painful, horrible experience has happened that says you are not real, you are on the, on the outside. There is nothing in this experience that looks like hell, but neither was there anything that looked like heaven. So that must mean that I am um, an outcast, which no. in, in Christian Protestant terms means, and my first thought was, Calvin was right, predestination, yeah. that we it is foreordained whether we are to be saved and will go to heaven or whether God has just cast us out, no questions asked. So... Right. That was my initial thought, the, the message there being, um, God doesn't have any use for you. Uh, fortunately, I uh, have been known to be somewhat headstrong, and I refuse <laughs> to accept that. Which, well, you uh, know, the, go- the, the goats are much more headstrong than the sheep anyway. <laughs> that, yes. And 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 the tares, the weeds, are a lot stronger and growing than the wheat is for the most part. So I can yeah. understand that. It, it even fits the Bible stories. Uh, so in, in terms of message, you know, I I think we have to be careful when we talk about messages because. Um, I, I really believe that was a totally wrong interpretation for me to make. It was the mm. only thing I had available to me at the time, but I think it was miles off track. In fact, um, I think the message was to look at my life 
very carefully and and figure out what are the ways in which perhaps I was living in a way that was not entirely true to myself or true to my faith or true to my potential or something. So I think there was a deep, deep, meaningful purpose in this message, though it was quite literally as painful as hell to sort out. I was going to say, you're in communication with many people who've also had distressing near-death experiences. Would you say that what you've decided about yours is for the most part, true for their experiences, too? Is it a learning lesson rather than a condemnation? I think people who have a chance to explore it, and by have a chance, I mean they're not so frightened away by the experience itself. And this may take a long time, but I think the key is for people really to get into it um, and, and try to try to get the doctrinal filters, the religious filters, the trendy uh, contemporary filters out of the way and be able to say, how does this fit the circumstances of my life? What is in here that feels true to me about me? Those people have a much better chance of coming away years later with with a sense that the experience um, does make sense. It makes strong sense in a very personal way, which they have been able to identify. Now, probably... The majority of people don't get that far because they jump immediately into the assumption, the literal assumption, oh, this must be hell. Now, people say that um, based on maybe only one or two images from within their experience. Someone may say, oh, it was a barren landscape. It must have been hell. Um, the thing we don't, <laughs> we don't realize is I have never heard an experience, and at this point I have heard thousands of experiences, not all of them distressing. I've never heard anybody say, I saw a street sign that said, this is where you are. I never heard an experience of anyone who said, I walked up to this group of people and they were all wearing name tags. And I talked to Jesus. I have never heard of a Jesus name tag. What mm. I've heard is people saying, and I spoke with Jesus, and if you ask, how did you know it was Jesus? They say, well, well, that's what Jesus is like. So they make the identification.
justification from what they know. And one of my favorite stories uh, is of the woman who, when she was asked, in your NDE, did you meet any any holy people, anybody from your religion? She was a devout Catholic, and she burst out in the biggest smile, and she said, oh, yes, she said, why, it was St. Jude. And when she was asked, how, how did you know it was St. Jude? She said, oh, I pray to him all the time, and he knows me best, so he would <laughs> have been the one to come. Well, what a lovely sense of being known and loved and welcomed to have your favorite saint come. But he didn't come with a monogram on his angelic robe. Mm. That was her perception. I I think it's so cool the way it works. Yes. Have you had had encounters with people who've... um, from other religions, from non-Christian religions, who've had the same reaction to a, a, non, a non-Christian saint or a god? It seems to be the universal, that whatever... Um, I kind of... An image I've used is to call it your pantry of possibilities. You know, if I'm looking for what can I make for supper without going out to the store... I look in the pantry to see what's there. We do the same thing with our interpretations. What is there in my my mind's pantry that can explain a particular experience? Whether it's you know watching a child running away from from a bully and he's crying and we reach in and say ah. I, I see what's happening. I understand this. Now, people explain things in terms that for which they have the vocabulary. Yes, I am not likely to have in any experience, no matter what the entity I encountered looked like. Um, I am not likely to come back to consciousness saying, I have just had an experience with one of the Norse gods or with a, a Hindu deity, because I don't know those names. I don't identify with those concepts. Don't, don't, you, don't you wish that you'd never heard of Calvinism? Oh, oh you better believe it. <laughs> that poor tormented man. I mean, I've come to have great compassion for his emotional state, um, as as my comfort with his theology has declined. <laughs> Nancy, um, how? Tell us how common. I mean, you've you've encountered so many of, of people of these people who've had DNDs. Uh, what would you say the percentages are, maybe for each type of, of the three you mentioned? I can't give a breakdown by type. We don't have that much research. Um, a few years back, I did a 
really intensive review of all the literature from 1975 to, 19, to 2006, looking at what the numbers looked like. And it looks the closest approximation we can get is that it's something in the high teens. I think the exact figure was like 19 point something of all near-death experiences seem to be somehow distressing, which, again, does not mean they were that one in five NDEs is hellish, but that one in five is disturbing as its its primary focus. Mm-hmm. And why do you suppose that uh, the New Agers don't even want to hear about the distressing near-death experience, that, that it's all got to be, you know, the golden light for them? That's a really regrettable um, and, I I think, extremely harmful approach. But it is, it's extremely common, um, understandably. <laughs> None of mm. us likes to think about unhappy or painful things if we can avoid it. The difficulty is that by refusing to, to give these experiences any kind of house space, we're, for one thing, not giving people any tools for dealing with them when they happen, whether we like these experiences or not. Roughly one in five near-death experiencers will have this kind of experience. And if we don't say anything about how, how are you going to make sense of this, how are you going to fit this into your life, we're doing them a terrible disservice because there are ways of of approaching these that that can help resolve them but there's also the whole idea that oh glory be we are so judgmental and it doesn't matter if you say um god is going to get you and send you to of fiery torment for eternity, or if we say we are responsible for for everything that happens in our lives, we attract what what we attract. We we are in charge of whether we have radiant experiences or hideous ones. Well, and then I have a hideous experience with no clue as to what might have conditioned those. That's not helpful. Furthermore, it's not true. Now, speaking of helpful, we have just a couple of minutes left. Perhaps you could tell folks about your book and your blog, um, because I think both of those could be very supportive to someone who's had a DNDE. Anyone who is looking for helpful reading material on near-death, distressing near-death experiences, 
has a really hard time because there is practically nothing. So I'm very happy to suggest um, the book is called Dancing Past the Dark, subtitled Distressing Near-Death Experiences. It's available both for ebook and in a paperback. It is um, both a description and an analysis written for lay people just for common readers. It's not an academic book. Um, mm-hmm. A description of the experiences, how people react to them. And then the bulk of the book is a careful and very wide-ranging discussion of things that um, may help us sort out what's going on with these experiences. And Nancy, so, uh, could could you tell them also how how they might find your uh, your blog. The blog is all one word, dancingpastthedark.com. Excellent. Nancy, I'm afraid we're out of time. Thank you so much for being on the show. As uh, always, gonna... <laughs> it's a delight. Um, folks, be sure to look for Nancy's book, Dancing Past the Dark. It's available on Amazon or Kindle. If you'd like to listen to this show again or any other of our previous programs, please visit our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about IANS, please check that website at IANS.org. There will be information on that site about our upcoming Labor Day weekend conference in San Antonio, Texas, on NDEs as rites of passage from September 3rd through the 6th. Nancy will be a presenter there, and I'll be there. And I look forward to seeing you all there as well. Thanks for listening. 